0: Jodcast. Freezing on impact with Melanie Chandra, Mel Irfan, Kat McGuire, Tim O'Brien, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, February 2012, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. Joining me in the studio today are Kat and Mark. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. And you may be wondering about our witty comment, um, uh, freezing on impact. And this is due to some freezing rain that was scheduled to happen yesterday, which didn't actually appear.
1: No, yeah, It was all very dramatic. We all thought we'd be stranded in the building, but yeah, we're okay. <laughs> I slipped a bit on the train station, but that was about the height of the the danger there, I think.
2: It sounded really apocalyptic, cause this rain was supposed to just freeze like some kind of superhero from a film as soon as it hit the ground um, but actually i think all the rain in Manchester is pretty freezing and we're actually quite used to it
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. in the show this time we talk to dr danielle fennec from ucl and dr tim o'brien answers your astronomical questions but first before all of that we have mel talking to dr anthony holloway in this month's job bite so, welcome
3: to our second ever Jodbrite, and today we're going to be talking to Aunt Holloway, who's in charge of IT here at Jodrell Bank. So, Aunt, I guess there's loads and loads of, of tasks that you'd be required for, but what, what do you generally do on a day-to-day basis?
4: Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, most of the time, we're we're solving people's problems that they have with the the computer systems. As you can imagine, we've got you know, a lot of kit um, for sort of processing all the data that's coming in off the telescopes, mm-hmm. um, and so it's helping people make use of the systems to, to analyse the data.
3: And um, But you actually did your PhD in something astronomy, something astrophysics-based. Yeah, I, I was
4: uh, sort of an optical astronomer. Oh, um, okay. So Manchester used to have a separate optical astronomy group and I did my PhD with John Meadburn, studying active galaxies and planetary nebulae, things like that, okay. um, going out to optical telescopes. Um, and then uh, I was working after my PhD carried on as a postdoc for a bit and our system manager at the time left and so I sort of thought, hmm, it's a, a different sort of thing. I've been interested in computers as well as uh, astronomy. So it was a, a way of, sort of combining two, the two interests together. So, uh, And that was about 12 years ago.
3: <laughs> so we have some stuff here at Jodrell that's pretty high maintenance. And I sort of mean the supercomputers and the mm. clusters. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because they're pretty yeah. temperamental.
4: <laughs> um, so some of the groups, I mean, Pulsar group is the, the classic, um, they... Process a lot of data, searching for uh, new pulsars, um, and to do that work involves a lot of number crunching. They're sort of searching for these pulsing signals through what sounds like noise. Um, so to sort of get through that data needs a lot of compute power. Um, so they they've got sort of two of the large clusters that we that, that we have at Jodrell.
3: And what about the the new project that we're starting here, the EMLN project? Does that occupy a lot of your time currently, or um, do you not have to? Are oh, you all set up for that already?
4: The, well, eMerlin, so the big effort is obviously, um, has been with the front end. So with eMerlin replacing the microwave data links with fiber optics, mm-hmm. um, that's led to a huge increase in the, the amount of data coming back. And the engineers have had to develop new, uh, instruments to, to sort of process that, that data and draw, transmit the data and then process it. So that was a, there's a custom bit of kit called the correlator that, uh, does that work. And that's been developed, um, with, with our partners around the world. Um, we're now getting to the point where I get involved, which is where we have to do something with the data that's coming off the telescopes and store it um, and, and sort of analyse it. And actually, people are starting to look at producing the images. Uh, so, we're, we're looking at the minute of sort of putting in place some of the, the big systems required to process and store all that data.
3: So, obviously, we've just mentioned um, email and could you just clarify to those who aren't familiar what, what is email and actually?
4: Right, so, so eMERLIN is the upgrade of what we used to call the MERLIN network, which is a set of telescopes that Jodrell Bank operates that are spread across the UK. Uh, and in the MERLIN uh, form of it, the data was sent back over microwave links, uh, bringing all the data back to Jodrell Bank, combining together to produce images um, as if you had a radio telescope that was as, as big as the distance from Jodrell from to Cambridge. Um, so that lets you see much more detail in the images, in the objects that we're studying. Uh, E-merlin is our upgrade, uh, where we've replaced those microwave links with fibroctic links, and so we can put just like uh, uh, sort of everybody's getting their broadband upgraded at the minute. Uh, we've already done this with E-merlin, and so uh, we can bring far more data back to Jodrell. And putting more data in from the telescopes means we can get sort of uh, a deeper image. We can see sort of uh, 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 fainter objects. Uh, in the observations that we're making with the, the same telescopes, but now we get to see more just because we can bring more more data back.
3: You must have quite a good grasp of sort of all the projects that go on around here because, I mean, if someone has a problem, mm. they come to you and they're like, oh, this program's not working and I can't do this, and y- you must get to know what they're trying to do, what the various programs they need are and, and how, you know.
4: Yeah, we're sort of probably one of the, the, sort of the IT is probably one of the few groups that uh, people in the, the observatory do get to see all the different projects that are going on because everything pretty much needs IT from... Yeah, you know, outreach activities right the way through to I mean, um, you know, all, all the data processing, and then and then sort of housekeeping functions, um, keeping a track of who's who's here and who's left and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, um, you, you do get a, a you know a good idea of what's going on, which obviously helps when somebody comes on with a new project and says, right, we want to do this. Somebody else has probably already addressed that area before, so you can sort of uh, point them in the right direction.
3: And um, Okay, so you've got a hobby in uh, photography, I believe, and that also kind of links in with what you do. Because I've seen pictures on our web that have been taken sort of by you. So do you do anything for the websites or do you just take the pictures? Because most uh, pictures I see are from
4: you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Yeah, it sort of seems to be a a tradition that uh, George LeBanc in the past did actually have an official photographer when um, they had to produce photographic images to put into journal papers. Um, but then obviously that, that sort of thing's all gone by the way now. It's all done electronically. So it, people that, there's obviously quite a few people at, uh, Jodra are keen, keen photographers outside of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, on, on the opportunities where there's a good sunset or, or something going on, then, uh, yeah, there's a few of us are out there with cameras, uh, getting the shots. Yeah, sort of, it's, it's, a, it doesn't matter how many times you take a picture of it. You can always take a, <laughs> you can always take another picture of the telescope. It's very, uh, very photogenic. But yeah, so some of that obviously goes to, onto the website and there's a whole bunch of pictures we've got on the web. Um, covering sort of things like the telescopes and also the instruments and, and some of the, the images and data as well. Uh, and then we sort of edit yep, edit all sorts of bits and pieces. We've got the webcams, of course, as well, that's sat there. So if anyone wants to see what the telescopes are doing right now, you can go and have a look and see uh, see where the telescopes are pointing.
3: And do you still have to go back up to Jodwell much since we moved into Manchester? Do you return um, there often?
4: Yeah, like? yeah. They're about usually sort of one day a week. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously, um, whilst a lot of the academic activities now in Manchester all the, the observing is, is being done at Jodgel. So, as you say, e-merlin, pulsars, mm-hmm. um, they've all got systems that are sort of hooked into the telescopes and often it makes a lot of sense to process the data there as it's coming off the telescope. Um, obviously, one of the issues we have is, is shielding those computers, that we don't want uh, the electronics oh, yes. and things in the computers getting picked up by the telescopes um, and, and sort of contaminating the, the signals we're trying to look for. Oh. I mean, we know the, the classic story of the Lovell can pick up a, a mobile phone on Mars, which is what we're trying to do when the, the Beagle probe um, <laughs> landed or didn't land or whatever. Um, so, with so these large compute cluster things, we do have to put them into shielded cabinets or. In the I was case- going to
3: say, are they actually locked up like the microwaves there, like locked mm. in Faraday cages? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow.
4: yeah, So the 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 big pulsar computer there is is all in a Faraday cage, and the other sort of big facilities, the E-Merlin Correlator Room. So we have a, a fully shielded, you know, big, um, probably sort of, f- sort of four by five metre cube um, of, sh- of solid steel that contains the, the E-Merlin <laughs> systems. Um, so oh, that, okay. uh, again, we don't we don't want to use the telescopes to observe our own building. Um, <laughs> so uh, there's sort of a lot of effort goes in from the technical staff at Jodrell uh, into sort of how to design these shielded shielded rooms.
3: So when I was talking about uh, the fairly temperamental computers we have, I think I meant uh, more in terms of the the coma um, the cluster and our supercomputers and that they're very specific, the temperature they have to be kept up uh, at as well, right?
4: Yes, I mean, they have to be in air-conditioned rooms. Um, and obviously, that causes a challenge, particularly at George. where we want a rack that stops... Signal's getting out, but we want to get the air in, and so we have to have racks that have um, honeycomb filters on, uh, which sort of let let the uh, the air get through, but the the fine grid sort of stops the radio waves from escaping. Um, it does also make the room look quite attractive when you've got all the LEDs blinking and flashing, and you see them through all these sort of um, grids, sort of uh, reflecting the the, uh, the light around. Um, but yes, it's essentially They're
3: quite we- high maintenance. But oh. yeah. if you get them in the right condition, they're fine. You can yeah. You, you can if say, if oh, you, you get you overheating,
4: then yeah, you've got a pro- you've got a problem. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, essentially, we we buy um, sort of rack mounted uh, PCs, um, which can then be sort of stacked up in, in these racks. Um, uh, but it's, they're using standard um, sort of PC components. It's the, you know Intel processors and um, hard disks and all the rest. And um, we use the Linux operating system. So that's mm. one of the big things that's just slightly different maybe from, from most people's experience of computing is that we, we don't use Windows for <laughs> processing this data um, mm-hmm. because you want to or uh, well, Linux operating system is very good at uh, uh, enabling you to manage a large number of computers very easily from sort of one head machine you can control the whole the whole cluster um, and it also makes it easier for people to process their data, they, they submit jobs onto a queue and then it finds spare computers to go and run, run those programs on
3: so, um, as in, you would ha- it manages itself, it time sort of manages itself, mm. or every uh, request gets put towards you and then you allocate people time? No. Or is it simply first come, first serve, sit in the back of the computer line? It, or?
4: it uses a, what's something called a fair shares algorithm. So, the okay. idea is that if, say, one person's been using the, the cluster um, intensively for, for a few days uh, and then you come along uh, with your job, even if they've got jobs still waiting to run, mm-hmm. it'll go well. Okay, they've they've had their they've had, they've had their fair share for the last <laughs> few days. Right, we're gonna we'll pick this other person's job to run now because you know, let everybody have a go. Um, and still, you can get some situations where people work out the the rules and they they try and sort of you know um, <laughs> work out how best to, to load the system so that their jobs get the highest priority. But uh, we should put a stop to that.
3: I was going to say you could expect no less from scientists, yeah. right? But- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: thank you very much for coming to speak to us, and it's very cool.
4: <laughs> no problem. Cheers. Awesome.
0: Thanks for that, Mel. Next, Melanie speaks to Dr. Danielle Fenek about Starburst Galaxies.
5: Hi, I'm here today with uh, Dr. Danielle Fenech. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Melanie. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. So, uh, Danielle works on uh, Starburst Galaxy M82. Can you tell us more about this galaxy? What's special about it?
6: Okay, M82 is um, actually a nearby starburst galaxy, the closest to us um, in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's um, a starburst because it's currently undergoing active star formation. Much And it has a much higher star formation rate, so it's producing stars at a much higher rate than our own galaxy does. Uh, And that means we get to study a lot about... The processes of star formation and in particular for me um, the end points of of star formation when stars reach the ends of their existence and explode as supernovae and form supernova remnants so the remains of a supernova explosion. And what's so
5: interesting about studying supernova remnants?
6: Uh, Well they tell you about the processes of Um, star formation in the galaxy. They tell you about the effects of star formation on the galaxy and you can use them to probe the um, interstellar medium within the galaxy itself.
5: What do you mean by probe the interstellar medium?
6: Um, You can study what kind of environment the interstellar medium is, so what kind of gas pressures and densities there are. And in m eighty two in particular it's very interesting because the level of star formation and the level of uh, and the numbers of supernova explosions are so high that they actually cause a mass ejection of of gas out of the galaxy itself in in what 's called a superwind and <laughs> well that 's particularly interesting because then you start to understand how a, a high a- active star formation region can produce effects that not only change the environment within a galaxy, but dump material out of a galaxy into the intergalactic medium and affect the galaxy clusters and, and nearby galaxies to it. So those supernova explosion its it's kind of the way we spread
5: new material or spread new molecules in the universe, right?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we would not be here without the fact that stars before uh, our sun, before, in fact, the ones we're now studying, had not gone through their lives and exploded as supernovae and become supernova remnants. That is the only way you get things like carbon, which is what we're made from, out into the wider universe. We would not be here if it weren't, were not for exploding stars. You talk about the life of a star. Can you give us
5: the the steps of the life of a star from birth to like how long is it and what are the different steps in the evolution of a star?
6: Okay, well, stars the stars that we see in M eighty two are slightly different from the star from our own sun in that they are much more massive um, to begin with. They are typically eight to ten solar mass stars and can be up to several tens of solar mass stars. And that means that their evolution is slightly different from our Sun. Um, But the evolution of any star is dictated by um, the nuclear fusion process and it starts off with mostly hydrogen um, coalesced into forming the star which eventually under its own gravitational collapse will, will ignite and start to produce radiation. That... Reaches an equilibrium, and you end up with in a situation not dissimilar to our sun, um, with a star existing for a certain period of time, fusing hydrogen and emitting radiation. Once all of the hydrogen is used up in that way, um, it actually produces helium, and the star will collapse further under its own gravitational pull and start to, um, use the helium to in in the nuclear fusion to produce more radiation. Um, A star, a massive star like those in M82, will go through that process um, fusing higher and higher um, mass elements until it reaches a point where it can no longer sustain its own gravitational pull um, by the fusion process. That's the point at which it um, collapses in on itself and actually rebounds off of the the central dense core, which is what the supernova explosion is. That point of explosion, is it the same for all stars? Um, well, yes and no. It, I mean, it will go through the nuclear fusion process. Um, the same for massive stars. As I said, the sun's a lower mass star and will actually have a slightly different process. But Ultimately, um, it will depend on how massive the star was to begin with. So, an eight solar mass star is probably going to live a little bit longer and will go through the process slower than um, something like a hundred solar mass star, for example. So, you observe
5: those supernova remnants in radio, right? Why radio?
6: Radio specifically because M82, like our own galaxy, in fact, has a large amount of gas and dust. And with a particularly high um, star formation rate, it produces a lot of gas and dust. And the main starburst activity in M82 is right in the centre of the galaxy. And because of the obscuration that optical wavelengths, for example, suffer because of the gas and dust, they just can't see into the centre of the galaxy. Um, whereas with the radio, we can see right through it, and we can literally see right into the centre at very high resolutions, and pick out individual supernova remnants that are just completely obscured in the optical. Is there any other wavelength that's interesting to study supernova remnants? In M82, certainly. In in general, yes. I mean, there's there's activity that's observable and and uh, at all wavelengths really, and different wavelengths can tell you different things um about which particular region you're studying in terms of a supernova remnant it's it's difficult to do as said in M82 because because of the obscuration and because it's you know it's not on our doorstep it's not the same as observing supernova remnants in our own galaxy but you can equally well with infrared observations um and submillimeter observations um start to resolve individual supernova remnants in the center of the galaxy I have a question about
5: the different gal like starburst galaxies in general. You you said that there's you can infer the rate of star formation. Is the star formation what does what is it triggered by? Is it just from a merger or is there other way to trigger star formation?
6: Generally there are a few ways that you can trigger a star formation. In particular for M82 it's it's having a tidal interaction with another galaxy. It's part of a group which is known as the M81, M82 group of galaxies. And M82 and M81 have passed particularly close by on galactic scales, or intergalactic scales, in fact. And um, in the same way that the Moon has a tidal effect on the Earth, the gas is being moved around and, and tidally moved by the interaction with m81 in terms of m82 Um, other than that there are more distant starburst galaxies um, such as Arp 220 that have a massive merger so you've literally had the situation of two galaxies running right into each other now that obviously has a very turbulent effect on the gas and in the in the galaxy and so can trigger a lot of star formation as well Galaxies that have um, supermassive black holes at their center can also trigger star formation near the actual nucleus, near the black hole, as a function of of the activity of the black hole taking in and um, accreting um, the gas from the rest of the galaxy as well. What determines how much starburst
5: there will be in a galaxy? Is it the size of the galaxy? Is it the amount of gas? Or is there anything in particular?
6: Well, it's sort of both, in that um, the more, uh, the larger a galaxy, typically, the more gas it has. But um, the level of starburst, or at least the extent of a starburst, is very much dictated by how much gas is available. I mean, be you, if you have a finite amount of gas in any given galaxy, you can only sustain a starburst for as long as there is gas to produce stars with. So when you look at a, a starburst
5: galaxy with a, a radio telescope, um what you'll see is all the all the supernova remnants. Is that the only thing you use to determine the star formation in, in this galaxy?
6: Actually, no. When you um, look at M82 in particular, for example, um, but it's the same for any starburst galaxy, um, in the radio specifically, you pick out not only the individual supernova remnants, but also regions of ionized gas. And they are themselves a obvious identifier of current star formation. They they are regions produced from um, stars ionizing their surrounding medium, and you can pick those out in the radio as well. What
5: would be, ideally for you, the one thing you'd like to see in M82 that would answer all your questions?
6: (laughs) Answer all of my questions? That's a difficult one. Although, in particular, one of the sources that I've been looking at in m82 and people before me have as well and i'm sure people after me will too is is a particular source 41.95 plus 57.5 very uninteresting name but it's a phenomenally interesting object Um, it up until the 1960s dominated the um, emission the radio emission of m82 as a whole in and has since been decaying at around a, a rate of eight and a half percent a year, so is about the same uh, a luminosity as many of the other sources now. But it's it doesn't look like a normal supernova remnant as we'd expect it to. It seems to be bipolar and not shell-like, which is what you'd expect expect from a uniform explosion. And um, we currently have no complete explanation for what that source could be it's possibly been associated with a nearby gamma ray burst if um, you extrapolate the information we have back to the time that you'd expect it to have exploded if it is a, a gamma ray burst associated with a supernova event then it would have been much brighter than um any known supernova explosion in M82 on the level of a gamma-ray burst, but it would have to still have had an unusual for a gamma-ray burst um, event. And, and in terms of detecting those in the nearby universe, well, there aren't any. They're all very high redshift, very distant events. Um, so it's it's mostly speculation at, at the moment in terms of what that actually is, but it's it's a very unusual source and a very interesting source. That sounds really cool. So...
5: Gamma ray burst. Uh, is that the only explanation? The only thing you could think of for
6: for this weird source? Well, I mean, no. There are other possibilities that it just happens to be a um, an unusual supernova event. In that it's it's quite a normal, possibly in the, in the ranges of of supernova events. And it's just that the way that we observe it and the way it seems to us, and the information that we can actually get from it, it just we don't have a complete picture. I mean. There is uh, another object, uh, another supernova remnant, in fact, in another nearby galaxy that's also shown so- some similar characteristics to this particular source in M82. And actually, what that has turned out to be is a particularly bright core remain, so in fact they think it's possibly a, a, a pulsar or a, a black hole at the centre of the supernova remnant that's that's become observable and so it's having an unusual effect in terms of how we actually see the source. Now it's expected for most of the supernova remnants that you will get that kind of um, core remained once it's thrown off the outer shells from the original star that you will actually end up with some form of neutron star or black hole at the centre, um, but it's not often detected, and certainly not in galaxies outside of our own. I mean, obviously there's uh, some reasonably famous supernova remnants within the galaxy where this is already observed, but that that is this um, SN 1986J is is the supernova remnant, uh, the supernova event that this has been associated with, but. Uh, the characteristics of that particular supernova remnant don't completely match up with, with the one in M82. I mean, again, there's it shows some very similar characteristics, but it doesn't give us the whole explanation just yet.
5: So what kind of information would you need to get a definite answer?
6: We'd need... Certainly more detailed monitoring of its evolution to try and study what's going on in terms of um, its its decay and luminosity and any evolution structurally in terms of whether or not it's expanding, which is what you expect a supernova remnant to do, because obviously it was an explosion, it threw off the material out, would you expect it to keep going? And if that's not the case, why it, why it would have slowed down and why such a massive decay that is in fact still continuing most of the other supernova remnants, certainly the younger ones in M82 even now, have reached a a reasonably stable part of their evolution in terms of their luminosity, whereas this source hasn't. Also, we need higher resolution and, and better fidelity images to be able to pick out any... And to see if there is actually any radio emission other than just the bipolar structure that we're seeing. So, for example, if there is a, a faint pulsar or black hole in the center of it, or if, in fact, it does have a complete shell and we're only being able to pick out what is the more prominent bipolar emission. And more observations is always the answer. <laughs>
5: oh, M82 sounds like a really cool galaxy to study.
6: Yeah, definitely. <laughs>
5: Well, thank you very much, Danielle.
0: You're very welcome. Thank and, uh, you.
5: <laughs> bye.
0: Thanks for that, Melanie. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things that we couldn't fit in anywhere else, uh, the odds and ends. This year's UK-Germany National Astronomy Meeting is actually being held in Manchester this year. And as part of this, there's going to be some public lectures being held. And it's free to go to these lectures, but you do have to book in advance. Um, they're going to be aimed at general public knowledge and even people who are sort of later school years will be able to attend and understand sort of what's going on got some pretty interesting lectures going on um including uh, one on the structure of the universe and one on the Juno mission to Jupiter so that should be pretty awesome to attend sounds good it's going to be a good
1: good conference i think yeah it should be
0: it's
2: always quite exciting because the national astronomy meeting on nam is where all of the UK astronomers get together, and in this case also some from Germany, and it's good that we're doing a lot of outreach events around it, and having it here in Manchester, it's going to be a a bit manic for everybody, (laughs) but it should be quite exciting.
0: Yeah, it should be really exciting. There's also, in some of the uh, plenary lectures that are sort of part of the conference, um, there are going to be some free tickets for um, school teachers and members of local astronomical societies. They can get hold of some tickets for that. We'll link to the website where you can um, find out how to book these on the show notes so if you want to go along check that out
2: I'm particularly looking forward to the football tournament as well
1: <laughs> yeah you're going to take on um, Germany and Scotland and Northern Ireland I believe
2: that's right all these institutions have entered teams to the five side. although actually the uh, players will all be very international because all those institutions have people from all over the world in them but it should be fun excitingly there are now two more moons of Jupiter since we presented the last show. Actually, they're not really new, but they've just been discovered, or rather they've just been announced, as the observations from which they were discovered were made at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile in September. and um, They're rather small moons. Each of them is only about a kilometre wide, which explains why they hadn't been observed before, so they're a bit dim and a bit distant as well from Jupiter. So that brings the number of moons now known to orbit Jupiter up to 66. And the interesting thing about these ones is that in common with 50 other of the Jovian moons, I had no idea about this before, they actually orbit retrograde, which means, that, which means essentially backwards, or in the opposite sense, to the planet Jupiter's rotation and the direction of its orbit around the Sun. And that's a bit strange, because during the formation of the solar system, you pretty much expect most things to be rotating in the same direction orbiting rotating on their axes whichever and so these were probably captured during the early solar system but after jupiter actually formed probably captured them and there's a whole swarm of them 52 known and they think there might be about 100 of them in that swarm so
1: do they all get their own individual names then
2: they do apparently or they will um Again, didn't know this. By established convention, it says satellites in the Jovian system are named after lovers and descendants of the Roman god Jupiter or the Greek god Zeus, who is his counterpart.
1: That's a lot of lovers and descendants. That's a lot of lovers. Very <laughs> yeah. appropriate, as we've just had Valentine's Day. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, I believe Jupiter was rather polyamorous. And, um, yeah, he's got a uh, hundred or so retrograde... lovers and descendants, apparently.
1: I hope they don't run out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) These two take 580 and 726 days, respectively, to complete their orbits. They're actually quite far away as well. Um, Certainly a good bit further away than the the four biggest moons of Jupiter that you normally see when you look up there with a telescope. So don't necessarily expect to see them, but do expect even more uh, Jovian moons to be discovered in the near future. And apparently after they've been observed for a year, someone gets to name them after a mythological person or... That'd
1: be a good job to have. I wonder how they decide. I was just going to say, I'd quite like to to be the person to name the moons of Jupiter. I could do that. I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now on to something slightly less serious. Um, As we were all watching Stargazing Live, um, we were, weren't we? Yeah, I was. was. (laughs) Uh, You might remember them talking about um, a really interesting and special um, wine that is infused with a 4.5 billion year old meteorite. And I was quite interested in this, so I did a bit more research because I wanted to find out more about it. Apparently, it's uh, made by an astronomy and wine enthusiast called Ian Hutchin, who's originally from Norwich, but now runs both a vineyard and an astronomy centre in Chile. And he decided he wanted to do something to combine his two passions, and so um, this was the result.
2: What a great combination!
1: maybe um, amazing <laughs> combination: astronomy and wine. We've not tried that before, have
2: we? And at four and a half billion years old, that is a mature it's wine, to say the least. It's a mature
1: wine. I believe it was only in the wine for for twelve months, but um, yeah, you know, apparently gives it a lively taste. So those four point five billion years.
2: I have to say I missed all yeah. this because I was. In Wales, doing some matchable live stargazing under a very dark sky. But I understand from Libby that while she was in the uh, the stargazing live studio, she actually drank some of this wine.
1: Oh, I'm sorry I missed out on that. We'll have to find out off Libby what it tasted like. But I'm looking forward to getting some for. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting some for the next Jodrell Bank Christmas party. You're going to uh, Chile soon, aren't you? Yeah,
0: sometime in May, hopefully. Yeah, some back.
2: <laughs> you required by duty, I think, to go and yeah, get some of this definitely. wine for us.
1: Future wine tastes may talk about notes of meteorite in their wine. (laughs) So now, on a more serious note, if anyone's missing him since the end of Stargazing Live, here is Dr Tim O'Brien answering your astronomical questions.
0: The first question this month is from Hayley, and she wrote in to say, I live on the Wirral, and today around 3pm the sun appeared to have a strip of colour to its side. It was like a mini rainbow but not as colourful also it seemed to reflect causing it to look like there were two suns in the sky what would cause this
7: all right yeah so this is a this is a phenomenon that we've seen a few times recently that uh, uh, i think you get it really when you've got some nice cold weather and some clear skies as well um, and it's actually caused by ice crystals in the upper atmosphere and the na- the rather bizarre name given to it is sun dogs Sun dogs? I actually have no idea why it's called sun dogs. <laughs> uh, but you basically see these things either side of the sun often. And Hayley talks about seeing one on one side of the sun, but quite often you'd see them sort of symmetrically placed either side. Um, or sometimes, that's usually when the sun's low down. If the sun's higher up, you can sometimes get a full ring around the sun. Um, that's called a halo. And basically what happens is there's ice crystals in the upper atmosphere and the hexagonal ice crystals that form. And as the sunlight passes through these crystals, um, it's actually deflected. It's refracted through the face of the crystal. So it goes in through one side of the crystal. It comes out through a face on the opposite side of this hexagonal crystal. And it turns out the sort of, so it's basically a refraction effect, just like you get with water droplets that form a rainbow. Um, and so you get this sort of little mini rainbow effect either side, which is why she could see that sort of coloured fringing as the light split up into the different colours. And you actually get it... It actually appears at an exact angle of 22 degrees away from the sun. So if you were to sort of point at the sun and then point at one of these sun dogs, the angle would be 22 degrees, and it's because of... um It's because of the the angle of refraction through the faces of this hexagonal crystal that you get a minimum deflection of light of of 22 degrees. So quite quite interesting things to study. That's
0: really interesting.
7: Yeah. So the the you do spot them if you keep an eye out. I think if you see these sometimes you see these sort of fringing colours around the moon or or the sun sometimes that are rather closer than that. And I think those are. uh, those are not the ice crystals, but they're more like a sort of water dropler effect from from the atmosphere. But these, these sun dogs are, are these hexagonal ice crystals.
0: Awesome. I'd definitely be keeping a lookout for those. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question is from Patrick, who asks, what is the most interesting thing you can find on the other side of planets that you wouldn't normally be able to see in the night sky?
7: Ah, OK. So, an interesting question. Um, I think most... Um, I mean, most planets—you know—planets basically rotate. Typically, so for example, if you pick Jupiter and you looked at Jupiter through a, a small telescope, you might be lucky enough to see the Great Red Spot, which is this big sort of storm in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Um, but because Jupiter rotates, sometimes the Great Red Spot will be on the far side of Jupiter, and you just have to wait until it pop comes around the comes around the the front side. I mean, even the Sun actually rotate about once every 28 days so if we're looking at things like sunspots or active regions and these sort of flares or prominences you actually see them sort of come into view from the far side of the sun and and then disappear again around the other side sort of two weeks later um which is why we've got these spacecraft called stereo where there's these two spacecraft headed off uh, around the, the the around the sun basically so that we're able to now see all sides of the sun we've basically got it surrounded with uh with stereo, so we can see the far side as well as the near side. but I think probably the most interesting um object, which is not technically a planet um but 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 our moon uh is quite interesting to think about um what you can see from one side or the other side because for the moon we're actually tidally. It's tidally locked, which means that the sort of gravitational pull between the Earth and the Moon has has locked it in orbit, so that the the rotation period for the Moon is the same length of time as it takes for it to orbit the Earth, 28 days. So basically, it stays with one face pointing towards us all the time, which means that we we only ever get to see the, the near side. Um, and the far side uh, was in was was unknown until we first sent a spacecraft out there to to travel beyond the Moon and have a look. Uh, and actually, that was done by the Russians in, in October of 1959. It was a spacecraft called Luna 3, uh, and it was tracked by Jodrell Bank. So at that time, the Russians... There, was, there wasn't very much around for people to track these early spacecraft so, so the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell was quite important in that regard. And the Russians actually used to fax... Um, all the details of the spacecraft to Jodrell, um, to Bernard Lovell at Jodrell. They used to sort of tell him when they were launching it, what the frequencies were they were going to be transmitting on and so on, just so that he could actually, um, listen in and, and partly confirm that they were really doing what they, they said they were doing. So we actually did track Luna 3 as it headed round to the far side of the moon and it took photographs, um, and sent those photographs back to Earth. Um, they actually took real photographs and they actually had to develop, they had to be developed automatically, on the spacecraft.
0: Oh, wow. On the spacecraft? On the
7: spacecraft, yeah. And then when they got the developed photograph, there was a little scanning system that scanned the photograph in and then turned that into a radio signal and sent it back <laughs> to Earth. So, um, so although I think, we, well, I'll put a link to the information on our website about this, but uh, it seems that we did pick up some of those photographic uh, signals that were sent, but we didn't actually turn them into photos because... Well, either it wasn't the actual photo, it was a test signal, or, or we didn't actually pick them up at the time the actual photos were, were sent. But certainly the Russians were the first to produce these photos, um, of the far side of the moon, and it looks very different. It's really heavily cratered compared to the near side. The near side's got all these, um, maria, these seas, sea of tranquility and, and mm-hmm. so on, um, which we think are just sort of lava plains. And the far side doesn't really look like that. So that's either some, something to do with it being, um, perhaps more heavily impacted because it's facing away from the Earth, maybe. Uh, all the, a recent idea is that actually there were two moons originally in orbit around the Earth and, and one of them collided with the, the main moon, if you like. And that collision caused the surfaces of our moon to be rather different from one side to the other. So that's still something that we're, we're thinking about. And these, these NASA, um, Grail spacecraft, which have been renamed Grail A and B, which I think were renamed Ebb and Flow recently which is quite a nice ebb and flow, Evan flow which, is, which is quite good because the moon produces the tides you see so it's quite a nice link there. Um, they're, they're One of the things they're interested in is studying the interior of the, the moon by its gravity as they orbit the moon and uh, maybe that will help us understand why the moon's far side looks so different to its near side.
0: Oh, brilliant that's that should be really really interesting.
7: Mm. Yeah we'll have to look out for that as the, as the results come through. <laughs>
0: Now we have a message from Alexandra in Poland, who's written in to say, what would happen to the Earth in the absence of the sun? I mean, where would Earth fall to? In the absence of gravity, would the Earth fall to infinity?
7: So I guess it's what would happen if the sun suddenly disappeared. Yeah. (laughs) So apart from it getting very cold and very dark and not being very comfortable, uh, what would happen is the Earth would fly off, because the Earth is sort of orbiting the, the sun currently, so it's the Imagine the Earth doesn't fall directly into the Sun because it's actually moving sideways. So in a sense, the Earth is falling towards the Sun, but it keeps missing it. it. sort of falls around and around and around the Sun. So if you suddenly manage to take away the Sun and therefore lose the gravitational pull of the Sun on the Earth, the Earth would sort of carry on moving in the direction it happened to be moving in. Um, now, uh that doesn't mean that it will sort of head off to infinity because... Um, the the Earth is actually still bound to the Milky Way. It's the, the the gravity of the whole of the galaxy, if you like, would keep the Earth bound to the um, to, to to the Milky Way. So so I think you wouldn't um, you wouldn't head off into into infinity, you know, right, mm-hmm. di- directly. But we would sort of continue to travel around the Milky Way. And I guess one thing is worth thinking about: how fast might all this be happening? Um, the the orbital speed of of the Earth is about thirty kilometers a second. So we're moving now at about 30 kilometres a second as we travel around the sun. And if you think how long that would take you to get anywhere, uh, if we happen to have been travelling in the direction of the, the nearest star, it would take, um, over 40,000 years for the earth together. So we might travel head off into space, but we wouldn't be going anywhere particularly fast. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that probably answers Alexander's <laughs> question.
0: Yeah, definitely. We have a question from Christoph and he says, why does the method of gravitational lensing work if normal matter, which is used in this method, as I understand, only makes up 5% of all mass in the universe? Is dark matter just too dispersed to interfere with this process?
7: Right, well, I mean, gravitational lensing, just to explain what that is, first of all, it's basically the, an effect caused by the curvature of space-time, which is something that Einstein suggested as part of his general theory of relativity. So objects with mass effectively change the geometry of space-time, the curve space-time, and then light, um, which travels on the shortest paths through space time is actually effect- effectively appears to bend around massive objects. So in gravitational lensing, what you imagine is you imagine us sort of sitting here and looking out into space at a distant object. Uh, and the first object for which this effect was seen was a quasar. And it was actually seen by a group of astronomers at Jodrell Bank, um, back in the 19- late 1970s. So if you looked at this distant quasar, uh, what happens is um, the light from that quasar is actually bent around an object between us and the quasar. And for this first one, it's called the double quasar, because the light was split and effectively formed two images of the same uh, quasar off, off, off in distant space. Um, now, in fact, the, uh, the question here is, uh, the confusion is that actually, yes, normal matter does does cause, can cause gravitational lensing, But dark matter also causes gravitational lensing because dark matter still has mass. In fact, that's how we know it's there, is because of its gravitational effect. So although it doesn't produce any light, and hence the name dark matter, uh, it does have gravity, and therefore it does contribute to gravitational lensing. And actually, because there's five times as much dark matter, we think, as normal matter, if if you want to call it that, uh, the normal stuff around (laughs) us that we are made of, um, because there's five times more dark matter than normal matter... Um, actually, its effects dominate in gravitational lensing studies. So gravitational lensing is one of the best ways we have of studying dark matter. And we have to certainly take into account uh, its effects when we're looking at the sort of distortion of the images of galaxies in clusters and so on, um, caused by the dark matter of intervening clusters or intervening intervening galaxies.
0: Fantastic. And <laughs> um, that's all the questions that we have for this month. But please send in any of your questions that you want answered via the webpage at www.jodcast.net.
1: Thanks for that, Tim. Now on to the feedback.
2: We've had three postcards since the last episode.
0: That's a lot of postcards.
2: Makes us
1: happy. (laughs) Did I get one?
2: Um, They're all addressed to the Jodcast, so I think they're all for all of us. You can share them out. They've come from all over the place. We got one from Mike Kelly, who was on holiday in New Zealand, and he went to the Mount John Observatory. Where we had an audio tour from In an early episode of the Jogcast Yonks ago Um, And he said it was the darkest sky he's ever seen And he's well seen the Milky Way He saw both the large and small Magellanic Cloud Clearly, which are satellite dwarf galaxies Of the Milky Way Um, I've seen the large Magellanic Cloud once You can't see it from Manchester You have to be quite southerly to see it But it's amazing to see Because you really think maybe it is just a cloud This fuzzy thing And then you think, nope, it's this clear sky And it's actually another galaxy
0: I'd quite like to see the Large
2: Magellanic Cloud. And then from an even warmer location, we had a postcard from the Bahamas from Anna and Sam. And they said, Love listening to the show on the beach. Just rubbing it it in. (laughs) Bet they had no freezing rain. But they did see a turtle, they said, which was ace. And also, I really like the front of the postcard because it says, Yum, yum, send more tourists. I
1: hope they survive their trip.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you you don't get savaged by a turtle. It has a picture of a shark on it. And to complete the set, we also had a postcard from the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida. So that's fabulous. Thank you.
1: We also had an email from Andrew Horner, who has recently discovered the Jodcast. um, After doing a bit of research, after watching Stargazing Live, it's always nice to get new listeners. Um, Apparently, at the moment, he's catching up on some past editions. And he's particularly enjoying the Ask an Astronomer series. So welcome, Andrew. I hope you stay with us.
0: Yeah, welcome, Andrew, and welcome to any other new listeners that are out there as well.
2: I love it when people go and listen to past editions and decide they're going to plough through the entire archive. (laughs) Because that is a mission, but a very commendable one.
0: There's a lot of dedication to the cause there. (laughs) And on Facebook, we've had a message from Paul Walsh, who says he's looking forward to listening later. I reckon if there's a Stargazing Live next year, they should do a bit on how the Jodcast is put together. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's best left to the imagination. <laughs> I'd like to see them fit a filming crew into our little
1: studio here. We have had bits of foam falling off the wall today as well, which is always nice when you're trying to record. <laughs> no, no, in all seriousness, we're very professional. Mm-hmm.
2: yes.
0: And thanks to everybody on Twitter for all the tweets about the Jodcast and the latest Jodcast episodes. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
1: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net
2: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast
1: On
0: Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast
1: On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast
2: And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast
1: And don't forget that
0: you can also send us post, and the address is on the website. So, all that's left to say is thanks to Dr. Danielle Fennec for the interview. Thanks to Dr. Anthony Holloway for the job bite. The editors were Dan Thornton, Tim O'Brien, and Christina Smith. The producer was Christina Smith. Until next time, Jod on. <laughs>